Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be there in just a moment or two. Scene played out in a mall somewhere in America not all that long ago. It's a scene that I've seen in malls all over the place and actually have seen it in other countries play out almost exactly this way. A husband and wife were out shopping, and I need to stop and correct myself. A wife was out shopping, and her husband was accompanying her. And they were at the mall, and he was doing the things that he knew he needed to do to keep himself out of trouble, or at least that's what he thought. And uh, so as they were doing their shopping thing, they went to one of those kiosks there in the middle of the mall, and his wife was checking out the merchandise, and as he was standing there, his eyes wandered across, and he saw coming on the other side of the mall, on the other side of the kiosk, he saw a woman walking by, and his eyes locked onto her, and he followed her as she went by, and all the way down behind the kiosk, all the way down past, and his eyes were riveted on her, and she just kept walking, and finally he lost her in the crowd of people, and he came to his senses, and he turned back to his wife, who by this time was doing this. Not at the merchandise, but now at her husband. And she asked him, what are you looking at? And he said, um, and she said, I hope that what you saw was worth the trouble that you now find yourself in. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus takes us to the heart of the matter once again. As a matter of fact, what Jesus tells us is that what we look at and the way we look at it reveals our heart. Matthew chapter 5 verse 27, he says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus comes to us again now. This is the second example of these six different examples that he will give us that illustrate the fundamental point of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 gives us that thesis statement. He says, for unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus has given us examples of what that surpassing righteousness looks like. We saw it last week. Well, see, you see, by the way, you just need to know on the front end of this, I'm up here walking in a verbal minefield today, okay? I know that one slightest misstep verbally and the whole thing blows up, all right? So pray for your poor little preacher today, would you? All right? Because what we find now is Jesus, as we saw last week, Jesus takes this concept, this basic driving theological principle that says it is not the external that needs to focus, it's the internal, That's part of what we were just seeing here, that as we change from the inside out, 
We sang about that also just a few moments ago, that as the inside of us gets transformed by the power of God in our lives, then that changes the external. But the problem with our religion is that religion always focuses on the externals. And that's what we find in this passage. Jesus says that old formula now, we've seen it, this is the second time, we'll see it all the way through. You have heard that it was said, and in this case he picks up on adultery, one of the Ten Commandments. It's a familiar statement. As a matter of fact, it's one of those far-ranging kind of statements that everybody would have said, Oh, now, can I, wait a minute, I can't even say that, can I? It's not one of those statements that everybody can say, don't murder. I mean, we said that last week, and 9 out of 10 people, maybe 99 out of 100, can say, well, I've never murdered. Adultery is not quite so simple in our times. What do we do with this? I want to start with the old here, because what Jesus does is he attacks their thinking Head on. It's one of the things I love about studying the life of Christ. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he was about. He knew exactly where he needed to take his disciples. And he didn't mind stepping on people to get there. Now, I know that that sounds like corporate America. But there's nothing even similar to corporate America. Jesus is about transforming lives. And one of the things that he knew was that the established religion that they called Judaism had missed the boat and lives were not being transformed. Lives were being stepped on in the process. So he comes at it and he takes one of these statements that was part of the fabric of everyday life in Judaism. One of the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery. It seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Don't commit adultery. Well, actually, not quite so simple for them, even in the first century. Put yourself on that hillside with Jesus. The Sea of Galilee is below you. These people are gathered around, and you're beginning to teach them about the ways of God in ways that they've never heard before. And you take one of their staple kind of tenets of their faith. Don't commit adultery. But see, we hear things that, or they would have heard things that we don't hear today. For instance, one of the ways that they interpreted this in the first century, the way those hearers on the hillside would have heard this, is they heard it as it applied primarily to women. You see, this passage, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments or the one of the Ten Commandments, uh, they looked at it, the men of the first century Jewish life, looked at it as primarily a prohibition to women. You remember, case in point, John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. I don't have time to turn there today, but you can write it down and go to it. It's the case where they bring to Jesus this woman who has been taken in adultery. You remember that passage? Now, what happens is they catch this woman in the act of committing adultery with a guy, and they bring her to Jesus. Question, where's the guy? Uh-huh. You know what? The same thing happened in here that happened in the early service. I said that, and most of the women went... That's right, that's right. <laughs> Where's the man? He was every bit as guilty as she was, but he's nowhere to be found. And the reason for that is because first century Judaism largely gave the man a pass on that. Well, that's, that's not totally true that statement because the deal is the way they saw it 
And by the way, this reflects 21st century American life and maybe American Christianity, I'm sad to say. The way they saw it was if this occurred... All right, verbal minefield time. What do you call this? By the way, if any of you would like to pick up this sermon, I'll give you my notes and you can just pick right on up and go with it. You see, sin has a way of dumbing itself down. It it makes it easier to swallow if we dumb it down a little bit and change the language. So what the Old Testament, particularly the Ten Commandments, referred to as adultery, American Christianity dumbs it down and we calls it, we calls it, (laughs) we call it an affair. It's like, well, you know, it's kind of like business, It's, it's just an affair. Or we call it a tryst. Or we call it an indiscretion. You know what God calls it? Sin. Straight up, no bones about it, straight up, it's a sin. See, we don't like, that's, that's harsh. The preacher, you keep talking like that, and you, you're never going to get it to be on the radio like those good preachers. Okay, I'm good with that. Because one of the things we have to do when we come to Scripture is we have to let Scripture speak for itself. Let's cut through all of the haze that our society builds around this and let's call it what it is. It's sin. Now, I'm not so stupid to believe that some people in a crowd like this haven't somehow experienced something along this line, either as an offender or an offendee. I get that, okay? I'm not up here throwing guilt out there. I'm just trying to get us on the bottom shelf. We can deal with it for what it is. God says it's a sin. Now, I'm going to talk before we get through this. You're going to see why it is such a big thing with God. But before we can even get there, I'm just trying to take the Old Testament part that Jesus is getting ready to turn on its heels. And the way they took it was they took it in and said, don't commit adultery. Okay, well, this is the woman's fault. You know that it was one of the things that they did is a Jewish male, once he was married, would have his wife wear a head covering in public. You know why? Because... Showing her hair in public would cause some other Jewish guy to look at her and want to have... See, I started to slip into it, have an affair with... To to sin with her, and because of that, it's her fault that he has these thoughts. So let's be sure and cover up her head. That is entire Jewish level of thinking, first century, hillside above the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes into a society and a culture that has taken the Word of God and twisted it and limited it down to a very small cut of people. And then secondly, they take that and they uh, further water it down. (laughs) Oh, ladies, if you're not happy to be a 21st century American lady, you're getting ready to be really happy about it. See, first century Jewish life, a woman was considered to be property of the man. (laughs) that's good considered to be the property of her man so 
they took this Old Testament statement, the command, don't commit adultery, and they took it to be, if adultery was committed, it was an offense not against the man's personal wife, the offender's wife, wasn't against her. It was not even a sin against the other woman because the other woman was the property of this other Jewish man. The breaking of the command was actually an offense against him. The ladies didn't even count in the process. You see what they've done? A wide-ranging command that is now being trickled down and focused in to a very select group of people to make matters worse. They considered it a sin, yes, but not a crime unless it occurred against another Jewish man by violating his wife. Let me just add a little more fuel to the fire. If a Jewish male committed adultery with the wife of a foreign person, in other words, a non-Jew, then it was not considered adultery at all. What that illustrates for us, even in the first century, we've had 20 more centuries since then to perfect our sin. Even in the first century, the basic concept of sanctity in a marriage They had so polluted it and so whittled it down that the average person, even on the hillside, could look at it and say, well, he's really not talking to me. You know, religion is great about that. And sin is even better about that. It's diverting the focus away from ourselves so that we don't have to take responsibility. Jesus says into that context, you have heard that it was said, don't commit Adultery, a very limited interpretation was heard by most or held by most of those people up on the side of that hill. It was sexual sin, but it was not really a crime. And for the most part, they could say, I'm off the hook. Jesus is just about now to turn that teaching on its head. Now, remember, he's already said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. And I said to you, that means he's going to fill it full before it's all said and done. And he's about to do that. But before we go to what he says, let's make sure that we stop and wear what is ours to wear here. What are the cultural values of this day and age when it comes to sexual promiscuity? I challenge you this week. I can make it easy on you and just challenge you for today. So either today or this week, however you want to take it, do a thorough study. In other words, just pay attention to media that you see on TV, to radio ads that you hear, to magazine articles that you see. Pay attention everywhere you look and listen for how sex sells in America today. One of the primary mechanisms that the marketers of our time use is some kind of sexual solicitation. Why is that true? Why was it true even in Jesus' day that people would hear this and kind of push it back off to the side and say, well, you know, that really applies to somebody else. And the answer is because Satan is excellent at his tactics. 
And he sucks us in and he pulls us into stuff. And before we even know it, we're violating the commands of God without really thinking about what we're doing. Such is the nature of sin. What I want you to see from all of this is what Jesus is about to do is he's about to take that teaching and their limited perspective of it and he's going to broaden the circle so that everybody gets involved. Look at the new. If the old is easy to avoid, as they showed us, maybe it's not as easy as we think, but they tried to show us that it is, what about the new? Look at verse 28. Jesus says, But I say to you, That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm going to stop here and I want to give you a tool for your Bible study toolbox. I always want to do that. I want to help you be able to take Scripture and use it for yourself and not have to depend on the big mouth preacher on Sunday. Okay, So I want you to notice, based on all that I just said, particularly about the cultural norms that they stuck to that old commandment, look how Jesus turns the table. The spotlight on verse 28 is no longer on the woman who they would have said caused it all. Who's Jesus referring to in verse 28? Talking to the men. And the ladies are throwing elbows and saying, praise God, finally somebody comes through for us. Be careful though, if that's the way you're taking it. Because Jesus fully intends to pull all of us into this mix. It is not just the male who can give the lustful look. It's everybody who draws a breath. I'm amazed, actually. Some of the stuff that I have dealt with through the years. I was a youth minister for a long time. Women and teenage girls can be every bit as sexually aggressive as men have been through the years. This is for everybody. It's not just for one or two of us. It's for all of us. And Jesus takes it to the heart. Everyone, he says, who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Now this is more than just the casual glance. Now I have to say, that the basic root meaning of the Greek word that, P, uh, that Paul, I'm sorry, Paul, what's his name? Jesus uses here is, uh, is the, it, it, the basic root word is that glance out of the corner of your eye that catches your eye, okay? That's the basic deal. But the way this is all crafted together, Jesus takes that and he shows how it moves us uh, to sin. Let me put it this way. The the casual glance that acknowledges beauty is not the issue here. Not too long ago, Teresa and I were talking, and she asked me, I don't even remember who it was about, okay? I certainly don't remember the circumstances, but I remember the conversation. Because she said, don't you think she's pretty? And in my mind... Warning horns, danger, danger, don't answer, this is a test, this is a trap, don't answer. Now the reason I felt that way is because the last thing that I want is for her to think that I'm ogling other women. Man, I hope somebody would have said amen to that, but nobody did. Okay, well... It's okay to acknowledge beauty. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam. 
He looked at Adam and he said, son, something's missing with you. And he created Eve. You remember how that, and Eve passed before Adam and what did he say? Whoa, man. Well, I mean, he said woman, but same difference. To acknowledge beauty is one thing. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. The way he writes this, or speaks this, and Matthew captures it for us, is it's not the passing glance that acknowledges beauty. It is the second look. It's the lingering look that is at issue here. As a matter of fact, the way he says it, it's the word, and then it's in a construction in the Greek language that intensifies it and shows it specifically that there is a purpose involved in this look. And the purpose, literally translated, is that he looks at her to lust her. Let's see, we need some kind of a more easy way, you know, friendly way to close that off, like lust after her. No, it is literally he looks at her, he stares at her. We would use the term maybe he leers at her to lust her. I have a teenager, well, she's not a teenager anymore. I have a daughter who used to be a teenager. Now she's in her young 20s. And uh, I've heard her through the years talk about guys looking like that. I'm grateful that she's aware that guys look like that. And she regularly used to say, he's creepy. (laughs) You know the look I'm talking about now? It's the look, the way Jesus uses this, it's the look that looks into a person. And you know that mentally they're going through the motions. You see what Jesus has done here? He's embraced a group of people, but he has not embraced their flawed thinking. And he has said to them, and he will continue to say to them, God loves you, but he also says, you're not going to get away with the way you've reduced God's plan for your life. It is not just the external. Jesus now takes it to the internal, just like he did about anger leading to murder. He now goes to lust leading to adultery and he pulls all of us into the circle and he says when you have that point of reference that you cast a look on somebody and you hold that look and you mentally own that person, that's the idea here, then you've crossed the line. It is an example, remember that. It is an example of surpassing righteousness. Jesus is saying, and based, based on that one point of the whole sermon, he's saying, here's an example of how we miss it. And my goodness, how we miss it these days. What he's done, just like he did with murder, he's brought it to the level of the heart. And he has revealed to us that the way you change the external is you have a heart transplant on the inside. You see the problem with lust that lives itself out in sexual promiscuity. The problem with that is that it reduces God's greatest gift to us on a physical level other than Jesus himself. The physical expression of love that is reserved for marriage between two people who are invested in one another. 
We take that and we pollute it and we reduce it to just a matter of sport. And in the process of doing that, we reduce the other person. I'm thinking through my years as a teenager and some of the animals that I used to hang out with. They're just like the animals you used to hang out with. doesn't matter if it's male or female. Those people that are always on the hunt. And the sexual promiscuity that grabs somebody at random or after an intense hunt pulls them in, has your way with them, and then discards them as if they are nobody. That's exactly what Jesus is saying is wrong. It is the diminishing of the value of the other person. Just like anger is a control mechanism over somebody that says, you don't count as much as I do, so does this issue that he brings up. I look at this and I think of America these days just how self-centered we are and just how focused on having our own needs met and how we diminish other people. I came from an area before we moved here. I came from an area that astounded me at the number of women who were raped by family members. Grandfathers, fathers, brothers, cousins, It seemed like it was normal there. There's nothing normal about that. You know what God calls that? Sin. And in churches, we can get all upset about that reality and walk out and treat other people as if they're just objects. And we do it in the name of biological drives. That's not that big a deal. Everybody's doing it, preacher. No, everybody's not doing it, first of all. That's a lie from Satan himself. And even if everybody was doing it, God says it's wrong. We've perfected this abuse of other people by diminishing their value in the area of sexual immorality. One of the biggest problems in this world today is slavery for the sex trade. So what do we do about it? I'm out of time. Hopefully I've laid the problem out well enough that we're ready for some kind of help with a solution. Let me give you a couple of very quick suggestions. First of all, look what Jesus says. (laughs) Oh, man. He does not let us off the hook, does he? Jesus, he drives a hard bargain. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. (laughs) Really? Question. You think there's any one-eyed adulterers? I mean, you may not find a man with a patch over one eye sexy, but you think it's possible that there's one-eyed adulterers? Jesus also says if your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. You think there's any one-handed adulterers? Jesus, master teacher. Well, that should not surprise us. He is God after all, you know. Uh, master teacher. And a master at using language. 
And Jesus uses hyperbole here. I know that when you called me to be your pastor, you didn't plan on getting a constant review of English grammar and that kind of stuff, okay? It is what it is, all right? Words matter. Words are important. And Jesus uses words intentionally. He uses hyperbole here. It is an exaggerated statement intended to make a point. What his point is, is not just, okay, gouge out an eye, cut off a hand, and everything's going to be cool. It doesn't change your heart if you fix the externals. Jesus is saying, take whatever drastic measures you have to take to fix the problem. Let me tell you something. If you have a problem looking at stuff on the Internet, get rid of your computer. <laughs> Preacher, you're crazy. You can't, even, you can't survive in this world without a computer. Then you're going to have a hard go at it because you can't control yourself. Hello? See, now you made me scream. What man? You know, but, but here's the problem with this. You, you can't control what they put on a billboard or as one little kid called him, a bull board. <laughs> you can't control that. So you might have to take the long way to work if there's a billboard up there that shows stuff that makes you start thinking about stuff you shouldn't think about. Let me, let me just help you here. <laughs> Jesus is saying, take whatever drastic measures it takes to fix the problem. But as I said when we started, you can't do this. You remember when I started the whole Sermon on the Mount? We went to the Beatitudes. And I said, those are a microcosm of the entire Sermon on the Mount. You remember the first of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what I said about that was spiritually bankrupt. The one who is poor in spirit is the one who says, I can't do this. And so now Jesus throws out this basic standard. It is just an example, and yet it stretches us beyond ourselves. It makes me go, I can't do this. And Jesus says, exactly, I got you right where I want you now. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he say next? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You don't get where you need to go with God unless you acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. One time after another, Jesus is going to throw out standards in this Sermon on the Mount. It's going to leave us going, what hope is there? And the only hope is in Him. So what do you do with all of this? You need a heart transplant. That's the bottom line. You might need to do something about your computer. You might need to do something about what you're looking at and what you're reading, what you're watching on television. You might need to get rid of your satellite. But you definitely need a heart transplant. You see, all of us are locked up with this tendency. The root cause of all of this is that we violate the second great commandment. The first one is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. It's the vertical relationship, us with God. Jesus says the second one is, love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor as you love yourself if you're ogling her and wanting to have your way with her. That's where we blow it. It's in the love for other people that we really struggle. You need a heart transplant. Unfortunately, Jesus Christ specializes in heart transplants. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior and you're trying to fight your way through life, give up the fight <laughs> because he'll take you 
to a life that you can never create for yourself. Matter of fact, all you're going to get in your own life is death and destruction. And the end is worse than the process. But Jesus says, I came to give you life, life that will absolutely blow your mind kind of life. And it just takes surrender to him and trust him to be your savior and to give you the strength you need for these kind of battles in life. I want to say one other thing as a proactive way to fight this. Adultery and sexual immorality and promiscuity. It was a wise man who responded to the old statement. The old statement is, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Heard that before? It was the wise guy who said, no, the grass is always greener where you water it. So my suggestion to you is, if you happen to be married... Water the grass at home. All right? One of the reasons, I believe, one of the reasons that adultery, sexual promiscuity is such a problem in marriages in America today, and maybe beyond America, but America is what I know, one of the reasons that they are so prolific in our time is because we have marriages that stink. Case in point. This lady was listening to her granddaughter. Her granddaughter was playing. I had to write, bring this because I knew I couldn't get it all exactly right. She was listening to her granddaughter who was playing, and she was playing a make-believe game called Wedding by herself. And she was playing the bride and also the minister. And at one point, the lady heard her granddaughter get to the vows part of Wedding, and here's what she heard her say. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be held against you. You have the right to have an attorney present. You may kiss the bride. (laughs) Or consider the words of one guy to another. I got my wife a poodle. And the other guy said, uh, you think I could trade my wife for a poodle? The reason those things are funny to us a little bit is because it's a defense mechanism for us because marriages are anything but funny anymore. You want to make sure that your spouse doesn't go looking for a fire across town? Stoke the fireplace at home. I really appreciate some of what I've seen in several of you here who are intentional at working on your marriages. And you treat each other like you care about each other. I like seeing that as a pastor. But I don't see that everywhere as a pastor. One of the reasons that adultery is so preferable to some people is because they're locked in marriages where there's no love. And we miss God's design there, and it's this cascade of problems and bad choices after that. Jesus has a lot to say about living. One of the tragedies of the church of our generation is that we got so focused on what Jesus had to say about eternity 
that we forgot to listen to what he said about today. And one of the things that he says about today is you treat people like they matter. And the only way you do that is when you let him be who he claims to be. In fact, who he is. He is God himself. He designed you. He knows how to make you work right. How to make you do right. And I don't talk about actions. I'm talking about just the function of living. But when we get it wrong there, everything else falls apart. It's like putting water in a gas tank. It's just not designed to run on water. It's going to foul the engine before it's all said and done. Get it right. Let's pray. So, Father, we come pretty well beat up. Very likely, most of us in here not guilty of the sin of adultery. Some of us might be. Father, I just pause in the prayer. Let me say to all of us, if you're here today, and adultery is part of your past, whether as one who committed it or who was a victim there, let me just remind you the way Jesus dealt with that woman taken in adultery. Before he ever called the sin what it was, he extended grace to her. Churches are experts at withholding grace and beating people up with sin. And that's unfortunate. Father, we pray that you would help us, those of us who need it, to get a good solid dose of grace today. To know that the design that you have for us and the failures that we have at that point don't have to be final with us. We don't have to live in the failure because of your grace. and We thank you for that. We pray that you would change lives, change thinking today. Do healing today. And where somebody needs you for the first time to come into their lives and take charge, give them the courage to make that choice is our prayer in Jesus' name.